0: What a privilege to sing. There's some really beautiful truths in those songs. I'm uh, so glad to be able to come to church and sing the gospel and uh, remember together uh, what's real. And uh, that's uh, what we want to do now. We want to open up God's word, and we're going to look actually at the Old Testament again today. So if someone asked you uh, what you studied at church or talked about at church, you could say, we talked about uh, the Old Testament. You could call this, I guess, an introduction to the Old Testament. So get your Bibles ready. You're going to be looking at a lot of scriptures. Uh, you remember, we have looked at a couple of key passages, though. So we talked about uh, Genesis 1 and 2 and Genesis 3, uh, and especially verse 15, and then Genesis 12, 1 to 3, and last week, Exodus 19, and today, Second Samuel chapter 7. It's going to take us a while to get there. Uh, but eventually, 2 Samuel chapter 7, remember that word eventually, I'm not, I'm not joking, it's going to take us a while. But the, the title that I've been using for this series actually is, Was It Not Necessary? How the Old Testament prepares us for Jesus. And you know that phrase, was it not necessary, comes from the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus is talking to a few of his disciples after the his death and resurrection and they were just so shocked that it happened they didn't see it coming and he is like was it not necessary which was his way of saying you need to understand the old testament better and that's what we're trying to do we're trying to get to know the old testament better which of course is something that a lot of people wouldn't understand us doing at all working at understanding the old testament because the old testament is not something that they really think is worthwhile now that's a little bit cultural. Where I was in Africa was was different. Uh, people liked the Old Testament. It was actually easier sometimes to talk about the Old Testament than the, the new. But I don't think that's how it is here. It's pretty common in this part of America, at least, for people to think of the Old Testament as outdated, as irrelevant. Now, we know it's not as Christians. By faith, we believe that it is the Word of God. And one reason we believe that is because we look at Jesus and we see he believed it was the word of God. He clearly thinks the Old Testament is authoritative and important, and he rose from the dead. And so we, we trust someone who rose from the dead. We trust Jesus. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, one of Jesus's representatives, someone he sent out to speak on his behalf, actually says that the Old Testament is inspired by God and is profitable. So that is Just a fact for us. The Old Testament is profitable, but just because we know that and believe that doesn't mean that we don't ever struggle with the Old Testament. If there's someone here who has never been confused by the Old Testament, I would kind of like to meet you. Uh, For most of us, there are parts that we get and parts that we, we don't. But one thing that's helped me is understanding what the Old Testament is doing. You're going to be confused if you don't understand what the Old Testament is doing. So if you pick up your Old Testament and you think this is kind of like a self-help manual, that's what it's doing, giving you advice like, how do I have a good day at work tomorrow or something? You are going to be confused because, yeah, of course, you can get help like that. But the Old Testament is doing something bigger than that much bigger. It is answering fundamental questions. So like the other day, I was thinking about the issue of transgenderism. How does the Old Testament help us with that? You could say, well, it says men shouldn't be women. Here's your verse. And yeah, that's good. But at the same time, it goes bigger. It takes you back to fundamental issues like We are not free agents. We are created. We are people under authority. God gets to define us. There is this cosmic battle on God's creation design from the beginning. In other words, the Old Testament is giving you God's view of reality. So, for example, it's answering questions like, what is the world supposed to be like? And even the way I ask that question is based on something I get from the Old Testament. There is a way the world is supposed to be like. And you remember, we opened up Genesis 1 and 2 and we looked at God's plan, which we summarized as the kingdom of God. God intends to rule this earth through a man who acts as his representative. And actually in the beginning, man and woman woman were partners in this project. So just picture Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, as a prototype of God's original design for the planet. By exercising dominion and by being fruitful and multiplying, they were to make God's glory known throughout creation. It was supposed to be God's people in God's place experiencing God's presence perfectly, which, of course, you know, is obviously not the way it is right now. Why is it not like that? That's a a second question the Old Testament is answering. And it shows us the answer really quickly in Genesis chapter 3. What's the problem? And really, everybody is looking at the world and trying to answer questions like that. The problem with most answers is that they are way too superficial. The Bible's answer is so much more profound. It shows us that the problem that we have is a lot bigger than we like to admit. For one thing, there is a supernatural component, though the Old Testament doesn't have a lot to say about that. The New Testament helps us there more, but there is a demonic evil force in the world that hates God and hates God's people and attacked God's plan from the beginning. And then, of course, man listened. That's the other part of the problem. He refused to trust God and instead wanted to be his own God to define good and evil for himself. And man's rebellion impacted absolutely everything. I mean, you pick the problem in nature, in society, in relationships, and we can trace it back to there. The Old Testament is answering big questions, like what is the world supposed to be like? What is wrong with the world? Unfortunately, it doesn't end there either because it also gives us an answer to another important question. Is there any hope for us? In fact, you could say the Old Testament is fundamentally about a promise. That's how some people even summarize the Old Testament. Promises made, New Testament, promises kept. That's a little simple, but that's good. The the Old Testament basically begins with a promise. The plan, Genesis 1 and 2, The problem, Genesis 3, and then the promise, Genesis 3.15. And the promise is basically God will win. God will win. God will magnify his character. He will take man's evil and turn it to good. He will show who he is and how great he is by judging his enemies and saving sinners through the seed of a woman. And that's what we're looking for as we're reading the Old Testament. How exactly is God going to keep that promise and establish the kingdom? And the primary way the Old Testament reveals the answer to that question is through something we call covenants. You remember how I was giving you key words for understanding the Old Testament. Kingdom was the first key word, or you could say promise. Promise. Covenant is the second, and what's a a covenant? I'm not gonna give you the technical answer again, but here's how you can think of them for understanding the story. They are like, as someone has put it, God's own job descriptions. After the promise in Genesis 3, in the first covenant in Genesis 9, God promises he is going to preserve the planet, which of course we're thankful for because he absolutely doesn't have to. He created the planet, he owns it, he can do with it what he wants, but he's committed himself, In spite of man's rebellion, not just to wiping everything out. And what's more, in covenant number two, it gets better. And this is Genesis chapter 12, because it's not just that God isn't going to just absolutely judge everything, He is going to fix what man has broken. God promises He is going to reverse the curse. And the word that keeps getting repeated in Genesis 12, you might remember, is bless. And biblically speaking, bless is a big word. God tells Abraham, or Abram at that point, that he is going to use his offspring to bring blessing to the world. Whereas as I read recently, I like this quote, Abram and his seed carry in their genes the secret of universal blessing." And of course that's why we're so interested in Israel and what the Old Testament has to say about them not just because we happen to be people that like ancient history <laughs> but because they are the ones that God is promising he is going to use to rescue the world us so the big question that we started about la- talking about last week is how and this was our third key word Israel we talked about Israel, And we look specifically at Exodus chapter 19, and we saw that after God rescues Israel, it's almost like he makes them an offer. He's going to bless the world through Abraham's offspring. He's already made that commitment. That is irrevocable. That is sure. And this is almost you might say, an offer as to how. Let me quote it for you. You yourselves, Exodus nineteen four through 6, have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. And this is a key line. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, which of course got us excited because as we thought about what that meant and looked at some other passages that explained it and expanded on it, it felt a little like God was taking Israel out of exile, like a second Adam, and planting them in the promised land to make it almost a a second garden of Eden. Exodus 15, verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your mountain And he promises them if they would obey, he would make it like the Garden of Eden, and they would serve as his representatives and show the world what it's like to live with God as king. But of course, we know the way the story goes, and it's sad because they didn't, which is a problem, because obviously for God to establish a kingdom on earth and use someone to serve as his representative, man has to believe God and obey. And of course, the first man, Adam, didn't. And then the next big hope, Noah, didn't. And then Israel, God enters into a covenant with a whole nation this time, and they say they will, Exodus 19, verse 8, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But it's only a little while later, Exodus chapter 32, that they break the very first and most important command. They start worshiping an idol, and yet God's kind, he forgives, and then he trains them. He actually takes a whole year to train them, to get them ready. But when we get to the book of Numbers, a year later, after all that training, they do the exact same thing they did before and fail. And yet again, God is kind. He's patient. He judges. Sin has consequences, but he gives another chance. He raises up a new generation of Israelites. He enters into a covenant with them as well, where he renews it and at the end of deuteronomy if we didn't know any better we might be thinking maybe finally these people will be able to do what god's calling them to do and as we turn from deuteronomy to the next book of the bible joshua we see god keeps his promise in like really impossible ways because here are these Children of slaves who, who live most of their lives in the wilderness, and they're coming into this land that's filled with warriors and even they would say giants, and yet none of that stops God from being able to do what He's told what He's told them He would do, as long as they trust and obey. And yet, when we move from Joshua to the book of Judges, we see really clearly that even though God is committed to keeping His word, Israel absolutely won't keep theirs. And by the end of the book of Judges, they have proven that they're just as evil as the people God sent them there to judge. I mean, I don't know when you last read the end of the book of Judges, but it's, it's kind of gross, actually, with like supposed spiritual leaders having concubines and cutting them up, and it's terrible. And the point is that Israel is terrible. And there is a massive obstacle to them being the ones to establish God's kingdom on earth. And so you're kind of scratching your head if you're following along at this point as you read the Old Testament. And you're looking back at the story and you're asking, is there maybe something we missed? You know? And again, I I said this last week, but I get a little excited here because that question is not theoretical. It's not hypothetical. I mean, this is not like English class where we're reading a a novel and wondering, I wonder how the author is going to resolve the issue or something. As we look at Israel, the fate of the world, your world, is literally on the line. These are the people God has identified that he is going to use to bring blessing into the world. And you read the Mosaic covenant and you think, okay, this is how they're going to do it. And then they can't do it. And you should be thinking, if they can't do it, how is it going to be done? And you know, if you go back to the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Bible, you find there are, there are some hints that God already anticipated this problem before it happened. He gets you ready. You're not surprised. He tells Adam and Eve, don't eat the fruit. They eat the fruit. He warns Cain sin is crouching at your door. King kills his brother. He commands Israel, don't worship idols. They build an idol and worship it. He tells the people, go into the promised land. They won't go into the promised land. Afterwards, he tells the people, don't go into the promised land. And they try to go into the promised land. And so you read the Pentateuch, it's not looking good, but it gets worse actually because God prophesies how it is going to end in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 16. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, You're about to lie down with your fathers and this people will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land into the midst of which they're going and will forsake me and break my covenant which I've made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day and I will forsake them and hide my face from them and they will be consumed and many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, is it not because our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us? Which is really sad, and terrible, and yet in a strange way gives a little hope, because it's not like Israel's failure surprised God. And so that maybe causes you to look back at the promises a little more carefully, and you do, and you see that God not only anticipates the problem, he also gives us some hints as to the solution. Because alongside all this talk about the plural seed of Abraham, Israel, there's also this stream of passages that point to a singular seed of Abraham. Are you following? Because the word seed or offspring, that word can be plural. These are my offspring, and I'm talking about all my children. But it also can be singular. This is my offspring, and I'm only talking about one of them. And I'm saying that while Moses sometimes does talk about the whole nation of Israel, probably most often, Other times, though, he is specifically talking about a representative of Israel. Like, for example, the very first promise, Genesis 3, verse 15. You can do the research, or I can help you do the research, but the seed that crushes the head of the serpent is singular. There is a war going on between the plural seed of the serpent and the plural seed of the woman, but the one who achieves the victory ultimately is a he, an individual. He shall bruise you on the head. Or if you fast forward to Genesis 22, 17 and 18, God promises Abraham. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, which is obviously plural. But you know, scholars who have studied this text in depth have said the grammar sets the next part of the verse apart. There's a change that happens. And at this point, seed is singular. Your seed, singular, shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, singular, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. There's going to be a nation for sure, but there's also going to be a champion. And it doesn't stop there. Again, if you look at Genesis, there is a lot of expectation of this blessing coming from a great nation, but there's also this hint that even more specifically, it's going to come from an individual. And if you keep looking even more specifically, that it's going to come through a king. And at first, it's just a hint, but it keeps building. Genesis 17, verse 6, God promises, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. And that little statement stands out for a couple reasons. And the first is just because of the flow of the story. You're looking for a hero, and a king coming from Abraham seems like a pretty important clue. But the second is because if you step back and look at Genesis as a whole, you'll see one of the points of Genesis is to identify Judah as being the source of the king who's going to fulfill that promise. Genesis, we said last week, is all about who is going to bring the blessing. And the last section of Genesis, the longest part of Genesis, Genesis 37 to 50, we usually think is about Joseph, they even call it the Joseph narrative, but it's actually just as much to get you ready for what Jacob says about Judah in Genesis 49.10, where he says the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. In fact, this week, you might read that story again and look at the transformation of Judah from the beginning to the end, because that's really the key to that part of Genesis. But Moses, or Jacob here, is saying, you know how God said there are going to be kings coming from Abraham? Specifically, Judah is going to be the tribe that produces those kings until Shiloh comes. And I don't actually know exactly what the word Shiloh means here. There are all kinds of different options, and that usually means people don't know. But I think it's pretty safe to say it's a title for the Messiah, especially when you see what comes next. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So if you're looking at the first book of the Bible and you're asking, how is God going to reverse the curse? And honestly, I I don't think there's a much more relevant or important question than that. We can't reverse the curse. Obviously this world is way too broken. How is God going to do it? And the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible is already calling on you to put your hope in a serpent crushing seed of the woman who's gonna be a descendant of Abraham and specifically will come from the tribe of Judah and rule as a king. And there are a couple other passages in the Pentateuch that go the same direction, Balaam's Oracle is one of the most important prophecies in the Pentateuch. Pretty awesome, coming from this pagan prophet God uses, who's actually come to try to curse his people. He comes by and makes this incredible prophecy about the Messiah. And then Deuteronomy chapter 17. But, you know, even if you don't get that from reading Genesis through Deuteronomy, by the time you get to the book of Judges, it's pretty hard to miss. Because Judges basically says what Moses warned would happen is exactly what happened. In fact, listen to Deuteronomy 12, verse 8. See if this rings. Uh, You can hear the the echo. You shall not, this is Deuteronomy. You shall not do at all what we're doing here today. Every man doing what is right is in his own eyes. That's Moses before they enter the land. And then the very last verse in Judges. Isn't it Judges 21, 25? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So Judges confirms Moses was right. Israel is not going to be able to do this. But it also, I think, points to the solution. Listen, the whole verse, Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so it's almost like he's writing in bold, bright colors. Here is the issue. And now we're finally getting to Samuel. I told you we're walking our way through the Old Testament. And Samuel begins by proving that we're right. This is what's needed. As this lady, Hannah. You remember Hannah? She's not able to have a baby. And in the Old Testament, when a lady is having a hard time having a baby, that is usually a hint that something big is coming. (laughs) Kind of interesting about Elizabeth and and Mary in the New Testament, but she cries out to God, and God gives her a son, and she responds by giving thanks, and her thanksgiving actually ends up being a prophecy that previews the direction of the whole book. You want to understand Samuel, you listen to Hannah's song at the beginning. First of all, First and Second Samuel are one book. You, you listen to Hannah's song at the beginning and David's prayer at the end. That's a preview and a conclusion to the book of Samuel but Hannah's prayer she prays in 1 Samuel 2 verse 10 those who contend with the Lord shall be shattered against them he will thunder in the heavens the Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed and that's striking because she's not just talking about Israel she's talking about the whole earth God is going to defeat all of his enemies and bring peace to this world. And somehow it seems he's gonna do it by giving strength to his king, which is a really surprising thing for her to say at this point, why? Because Israel didn't have a king. And so obviously she's looking at the problems Israel's experiencing and really the world and looking to the future and saying, the solution is a promised king. I hope you're starting to get excited. This is, this is really good. The Bible is amazing. And that's pretty much what the book of Samuel is about. It start, it's a theology. It gives us like a theology of kingship. And it starts off by showing us who is going to be the king maker. This king is so important. There needs to be someone miraculously born to appoint him as king. And then it deals with the wrong idea some people might have about why Israel needed a king. As you might think Israel needed a king because of something lacking in God. And so you know the story where Israel goes to battle against the Philistines and loses. And the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God. And actually doesn't just represent it. God's special presence is there in some way. And so it's like God himself goes into Philistine territory after the whole nation of Israel loses to the Philistines. God goes into Philistine territory by himself. And what happens? If you don't know the story, it's really a fun one to read. But that idol falls down before the Ark of the Covenant. And then eventually, basically, it's like God goes to war against the Philistines all by himself. And they get so scared that they send the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. And the whole point is that Israel doesn't need a king because God's not able to take care of them or something. And I know I'm doing a lot of summarizing, but this is important. Israel needs a king, not because of a weakness in God, but because of a weakness in them, actually. And so the next big question is, what kind of king do they need? Because of course, Israel, you know, had opinions about this. And they think they need a king like the rest of the nations. And so God gives them one. You know who I'm talking about. Sometimes answers to prayers are actually uh, judgments. you're praying for the wrong thing and they were praying for a king like the the nations and god gave them saul and if you didn't know the whole story you might think that saul is the one because he certainly fits the part and the book of samuel emphasizes that with all these little like almost throwaway descriptions like first samuel 9 1 and 2 this is an introduction to Saul, listen to this. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of bacorath the son of Aphia, the son of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. Tall Saul. And actually, funny enough, the town that he's from means hill or high up place. So this is someone who is high. This is someone who is exalted. This is the kind of man you would think would make a great king. In fact, I remember listening to a a lecture on the book of Samuel, and he was mentioning how we have certain symbols that we normally associate with certain professions. So like a stethoscope would be a symbol. We see somebody with that, we think of them as a doctor. And the writer of, of Samuel, has one of those symbols that you often find popping up with Saul, and that's a spear. And that's the symbol of a kind of king the Israelites wanted. You know who never had a spear, by the way, really, unless he borrowed one or a sword, was was David. He had like a harp every time you see him. But Saul had a spear. And that's not the kind of king that Israel actually needed. And Saul failed. And if we're tracking with the biblical story, we could have guessed that because Hannah already told us that God's humbling the arrogant and lifting up the lowly, and then beyond that, because he wasn't even from the tribe of Judah. And so you'll remember how his genealogy over and over made that clear, a man of Benjamin, the son of a Benjamite, and that was a different tribe, and it was actually the worst tribe at the end of the book of Judges. And so Saul is not the kind of king Israel needs, and what's Saul's primary problem? You remember He wouldn't submit to God's law. Same problem Adam had and Israel. And that's when the kingship was taken away from him. And that's important because if we're going to be rescued, the curse is going to be reversed. If that's going to happen, we need a king, but not just any kind of king. We need a king who will obey God's law. And so after telling us a bit about the wrong kind of king, the book of Samuel moves on and introduces us to David. And I'd say that's the fourth big word for understanding the Old Testament. Those of you who like uh, outlines, this is like a super long sermon over weeks, but one, kingdom, two, covenant, three, Israel, four, David. And David is one of the most important persons in the entire Bible. More is written about David than anybody else except for who? Obviously, Jesus. Jesus. So you're not going to understand the Old Testament or the New Testament if you take David out. And probably the most important place for understanding David's role in God's rescue plan is 2 Samuel chapter 7. So now we're here. And this is one of the most significant chapters in the Bible. And I could give you quotes. Like I saw somewhere someone said, if you had to pick three texts... Someone says, okay, give me three passages. You only have time to talk about three passages from the Old Testament to explain the whole thing. What three texts would you pick? Well, this should be one of them. Another person said, it's a virtual summary of Old Testament theology. And one reason they say that is because it introduces us to the Davidic covenant. You remember the Abrahamic covenant? Where? Any kids know this? Any kids still with me? Abrahamic covenant... Rhymes with benesis, (laughs) genesis, rhymes with 12, that's not really a rhyme, is it? 12, and Mosaic covenant is where? I think a kid can get this or an adult. Rhymes with um, (laughs) Nexodus, Exodus 19, and now this is the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and you could say this is the most important one of them all and we're actually just gonna fly through it. But it starts in verses one through seven by making clear who David is not. So that's first. We wanna understand David's role. He's obviously important. And that starts first with understanding who David is not. And this is important because David is big. And if you hadn't read the Bible before and you were looking for a champion, I could see you might kind of think that it could be David. And I, I don't know, maybe even David sort of thought that as well. But the first few verses of this chapter make it clear that that's not the role he's gonna be playing, verse one. Now it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. And the king there is David. But for the first few verses, the writer just calls him the king, probably because he's he's wanting our minds to be focused on kingship. We're thinking about kings. We know the answer is gonna be a king. And what word in that verse tells you we're going to be looking at a pretty important chapter when it comes to kings, like already? What word there should make you be like? It's the word rest. You remember how certain words in the Bible are like hyperlinks? And this is one of them. And it doesn't quite take you back to Genesis 2 because it's a different Hebrew word. But it does take you back to the book of Deuteronomy and Joshua and all these promises that God made Israel. In spite of Israel's sin, God's keeping his word. And it's starting to look like the kingdom is being established. So the next big question is, what will the king do? Next, verse 2. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Which I think is probably a good start for a couple of reasons. One, he's going to the prophet. And the prophet represents God's word. So the king is realizing who actually is the king. And the last couple chapters have made it clear. The way God wants the kingship to work is by the lowercase king ruling under the capital king. And there's some trouble that caused David to actually realize this is how it's supposed to work. And so going to the prophet is good. He has learned his lesson. He needs to rule by submitting to God's rule first over his life, which is where Saul failed. And, and then secondly, it seems like this is good because it's like he's tuned into the big plan of God, which ultimately has to do with God's presence. The kingdom of God is not just rest from enemies for Israel. It's ultimately God living with his people. Even Exodus showed us that was the purpose of salvation. First 18 chapters of Exodus are all exciting. The last don't seem that exciting to us. But the whole point of the book of Exodus is 19 through 40, and especially 25 through 40, the tabernacle, because it's all about the presence of God, God living with his people. And here it seems like maybe David's been reading Deuteronomy. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 12, it says that after God gives Israel the land to possess, they should find the place God's chosen and make his habitation there. And so it seems like David's looking at his home, and he's looking at God's home, and there's been some signs throughout the first few books and what God's done that Jerusalem is like the place. And and he's knowing there's supposed to be a central place for God to live with them, and he's thinking he should build a temple. And at first, Nathan agrees. This is verse 3. Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. And yet, here's kind of the first hint of a problem, because what is, that, what is it that Nathan doesn't do? He doesn't go to God, and I don't know why, but maybe because it seems obvious to him that David is the chosen one. And again, there's a lot at this point that would make you think that. But verse four says, in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and say to my servant David, and my servant is a big title, we're servants of God, but not in the same way David is. You might think of servant with a capital S. Actually, in the book of Acts, this, I was just reading this morning, morning, this morning that uh, this is something they said about Jesus. So God is acknowledging that David has a role, but not the role David thinks. Thus says the Lord, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? And that's in question form here. Uh, one of the things you do as you read this story is you compare it with Chronicles, because Chronicles has the same story in it. So a really good thing to do is print out 2 Samuel chapter 7, print out the same passage in Chronicles, and then you compare them, because uh, it helps you understand why are they saying things the way they're saying them. And in Chronicles, it's not a question, it's a statement. He just says, you're not the one to build my house. So that's almost like a, a, a girl who's being asked out by a boy. She's saying, you are not, I am not going out with you. This is more like a boy coming to the girl and asking her out. And she says, do you really think I would go out with you? It's in question form here because uh, it's almost like God is saying, David, who exactly do you think you are? And to understand why God asks it like that, I think you have to go back to God's plan with Adam. So you remember Adam had the Garden of Eden that was like the first temple, and he was a priest king there, and yet he failed. And so God starts making promises about this seed who is coming to bring blessing to the world. And throughout Genesis, he chooses individuals. He gives the same commission he gave Adam. And he says to these individuals in Genesis, uh, I I bless you, be fruitful, and multiply, and all that. And do you know what? they do immediately after that each time except for one. Almost every time God comes to someone who is the seed, the person who's the next step in the plan, and he affirms that to them and gives them the same commission he gave Adam to to establish the kingdom, they, they build a tent on a mountain, or they pitch a tent on a mountain, build altars and worship God. And the place where this happens a lot of times is called Bethel, the house of God. And so I'm thinking that David might be looking at this rest God's given him, thinking about what his commission is from God, and thinking that maybe he's the promised seed, you know? And what is the promised seed supposed to do? Build God a house. And the first thing God's saying here to David is, no, that's not your role. And the next verse is a little confusing if you look at verses 6 through 7, but I I think that what's happening is maybe after dealing with this potential misunderstanding about David, God deals with another potential misunderstanding about the temple, because the temple is important in the story of the Bible. It's huge, and we're going to see that actually even in the Gospel of Luke. The temple is a good thing. What does Jesus say about the temple at at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. It's actually, the temple is really huge in the Gospel of Luke. This is my father's house. And at the end of Luke, the disciples are just, they're just, one of the biggest moments is they can't understand that the temple is gonna be torn down. The temple is really important in, in the Bible, but it's not the house part, the building part that makes it so significant. And God explains, verse six, I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? And this is important because Israel's going to miss this over and over again. And once the temple's built, they're going to put their hope in the actual physical structure of the temple. You remember in Jeremiah, where. Jeremiah is standing in front of the temple and the, he's trying to explain to the people you're going to be sent into exile. And what's their song that they sing to him? They have like a number one hit song that they say, this is crazy what you're saying, Jeremiah. They're like, the temple, the temple, the temple. They were putting their hope in, in the structure because that's what humans do. They focus on externals. And especially in the ancient Near East, they thought of their gods as being tied to actual locations. And, and, and so God's going to want a temple. The temple is going to become... Really important, but David is not the one to build it. And so God takes this moment and explains something that's going to be fundamental for understanding its significance long term. God is not limited in any way. And so the purpose of the temple is not because of some need in him, as if he needed a place to live. It's actually more for us. It's a way for us to experience the ultimate blessing, which is God's presence. And if we look to the book of Revelation, this is where God's plan is headed a cosmic city temple where his people experience his presence perfectly. But David is not the one to establish that. God has not given this command to build a temple to him. So what is his role exactly then? David is not the ultimate chosen priest king he's going to use to establish his kingdom on earth, but God promises one of his descendants is. And this is going to be verses eight through seventeen and That sounds kind of tame, I know, even to to write it down, like point number one, David's not the final promised king, but point number two, one of his descendants is. But you have to remember, we're talking about God identifying the person that he's gonna use to solve the problems of the universe. That's huge, right? That's huge. This is the one who is gonna reverse the curse, the single ultimate champion God's identifying where the serpent-crushing seed of the woman is coming from. And I think we see how big this is as we look a little closer at the promises he makes David. Verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. And Lord of hosts. Hosts think armies. Lord of armies. And it's just a reminder at the beginning that God is going to be able to do what he's promising. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And what word doesn't he say there, actually, that you might expect? Because he said the word a bunch in the first seven verses. He doesn't say the word king. Prince is actually a leader here. And maybe that's because he doesn't want there to be confusion as he's going to start talking more about the coming king. David's a leader. He's not the ultimate king. And yet he starts by reminding David that the reason for his success is not his strength, but God's. Verse 9, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you, which sounds a little bit like what? What other covenant? How does another covenant? Sounds a lot like the uh, Mosaic covenant, the covenant he made with Israel, how it begins. Only now he's making a covenant with one person, David. And look at his first promise. And I will make for you a great name. You know, it's it's insignificant how often when the Bible's about to, when God's about to say something significant, he quotes himself. (laughs) So even most of Jesus's words on the cross, Jesus is actually quoting the Old Testament. But here... God is quoting himself. I will make you a great name. Where did he say that before? Who did he say that to before? Can you remember? Genesis 12. This is the promise he made to Abram. And what's happening is God is taking the promise of blessing he's gonna bring through Abram, that huge reversal of the curse, and now he's giving it specifically to David and his descendants. As one man puts it, This anchors the Davidic covenant in the progressive unfolding of God's promises to Abraham. By attaching to David the promises he made to Abraham, God indicates his intention to bring his kingdom intended for Adam, promised to Abraham, and organized at Sinai through David. So this is big. In fact, one of my professors preached a sermon on this passage, the Davidic covenant, and he titled it, The One Covenant to Rule Them All. Where do you get that language from? The one covenant to rule them all. It's a great sermon. I I sent the link in that email. You need to listen to it. He's getting that language from the Lord of the Rings. (laughs) You know the book or the movies, the Lord of the Rings. There are these powerful rings, but one ring in particular was the most powerful. And if you had that ring, you had control of all the others. And he's saying this covenant that God is making with David here is the ultimate covenant. The one who is able to fulfill this covenant is the one who is going to be able to fulfill all the covenants. And you get that idea here definitely in 2 Samuel 7. But you get it even more clearly if you read the prophets later. Because what happened with this chapter is that God raised up prophets later to explain it. And actually, most of the Psalms is, uh, so much of the Psalms is explaining the Davidic covenant. Try to read the Psalms thinking about David as explaining the Davidic covenant. Because that's what most of the Psalms are, are, are doing. And and really what's happening is they take these hints that we find in this chapter and bold printing them. David is going to have a great name because it's going to be someone who comes from David's family that ultimately fulfills the Abrahamic covenant, first. Second, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, which sounds like the promise God made through Moses back in Exodus 15. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain. And so now God's saying through David and his descendants, he's going to do that. He's establishing this kingdom. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies, which of course is the promise God made in Deuteronomy. And here he's saying David is going to be the fulfillment of that. Though already there's a hint of a problem. And, and that problem is key for understanding what's going on here. Because, yeah, you'll see next chapter, chapter 8, what's the heading if you just flip to chapter 8? Your Bible tries to help you, whoever organized this for you. David's victories, David's triumphs. And so after the Davidic covenant, this great promise, comes this record of how God kept that promise. But you keep going, chapter 11. David's great sin and then the rest of Samuel's just all kinds of problems for David and so even though it sounds kind of unconditional here I will give you rest David has some obligations if this is going to happen he needs to be obedient whatever king that is going to bring this rest has to be obedient but even though there's this obligation there's also this huge promise if you keep going moreover the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house and of course, that's like a play on words because he's not talking about a literal house, but he's using that word because David had wanted to build God a house. And now God's saying, that's not your role, but I'll tell you what is. I'm choosing you to be the line from which I'm gonna bring the ruler of the world. And that's gonna happen actually, no matter what David or his descendants do. That part, that's part of what makes this covenant so significant. It will be, mark it down, guaranteed. It will be a son of David, who rescues the world, for sure. And God goes on and gives some detail to that. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And of course, your mind should be going ding, 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 ding there. Why? Why? Because it's that word offspring. It's the word what? Seed. Seed. And the word seed is connected back to that huge promise in Genesis 3, verse 15. So sometime after David dies, he says, when your days are fulfilled, when you lie down, God is going to raise up one of his descendants, who's going to be the serpent-crushing seed that we keep talking about. And God promises, verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And this all sounds amazing to us and immediately our minds are probably clicking Jesus but I'm guessing that David if he's realizing it's not going to be him is probably thinking it might be one of his sons I'm not sure that David's right about that actually Um, but I think that's what he's thinking and yet of course that's exactly where, where we run smack into this whole problem again because look at the second half of verse 14 when he commits iniquity I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of men So what's God saying here? And to understand this, you have to understand all this is kind of programmatic. It's explaining how the Davidic covenant works. And actually, if you look at what David says later, he explains it. There's an irrevocable part to the Davidic covenant, but there are also some kind of conditions built in. Talking to Solomon in 1 Kings 2, David says... Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances and his testimonies according to what's written in the law of Moses that you may succeed in all you do and wherever you turn so that the Lord may carry out his promise which he spoke concerning me saying if your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So in other words, David understood God's promising a king who's gonna rule forever but that depended on the king being obedient first kings chapter 6 verse 11 and this is God this time now the word of the Lord came to Solomon saying concerning this house which you're building if you will walk in my statutes and execute my ordinances and keep all my commandments by walking in them then I will carry out my word with you which I spoke to David your father I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel so Israel experiencing the special presence of God depended on that king being obedient and God, again, First again, Kings 9, 6, But if you are your sons, indeed, turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I've set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I've given them and the house which I've consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. So even Israel having a kingdom is dependent on that king being obedient. And so it's kind of like, I hope you're getting the the feeling, the promises of of the Davidic covenant, especially if you look at the way they're explained and expanded throughout the prophets, and even what David says at the end of Samuel, it's kind of like this covenant that is like the sword stuck in the stone. You know that old uh, story, right? The sword stuck in the stone. And God's saying the one who can pull that sword out is going to be the one who fulfills everything. But you read the rest of Samuel and Kings, and what you see is that none of David's descendants could do it. They all keep coming and trying to pull the sword out, but they all keep failing. They all keep disobeying. And the ones who were good, what was their problem? They kept dying. And so even with all these great promises, how does the book of Kings end? Do you know? The Davidic throne is empty. There is no king sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. And so you might wonder, wait, what happened? Isn't this the same place we were after looking at Adam? And even after looking at Israel last week? I mean, it's a great promise, but nobody can do it. Except, and here's the hope, 2 Samuel 7 verse 15. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And what's God saying? He's saying that while the descendants of David might fail and have to be punished for a season, his promise to David won't. David is absolutely, for sure, going to have a descendant who is going to be the means that God is going to use to reverse the curse and, and bring God's blessing into the world. Can I hear? Hallelujah. That's good news. And, and you say, are you sure? Is that how David understood it? I don't know if he did fully, but I think he had an idea of what was going on because of what he says in verse 19. Listen to how he responds, 2 Samuel 7:19. And it's this last phrase that's key. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. That last phrase, one Hebrew scholar translates that word instruction, charter. This is the charter for mankind. In other words, David's looking at this promise and saying, it's not just about me, it's not just about Israel, it has significance, this This promise has significance for the entire world. He knew that one of his offspring would be a son to whom God would be a father and that this son would be the means of blessing all the nations and families of the earth. And you know what's amazing? What's amazing is that while David might have had just a little glimpse of what's coming, you're even more blessed. Because we are absolutely 100% certain about who that de- dependent it, descendant is it's jesus that's why the angels were saying do not be afraid how's the bible begin what's the first thing we hear adam saying basically genesis three after the fall <laughs> we're afraid the angel comes and says you don't have to be afraid anymore why because jesus is going to be born a son of david If you wonder what makes Jesus significant or you need a reminder, some encouragement, God made a promise thousands of years ago what he's going to do through a descendant of David. He promised someone is coming that he is going to use to reverse the curse, to do what Adam should have done, to fulfill the promise to Abram, to defeat his enemies, to establish a cosmic temple for his father to dwell in. And that's Jesus. And that's not just something for you to just go away and say, oh, isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? That's news you need to respond to. That's like headline news. Because Jesus is God's chosen, appointed king of the universe. Have you submitted to him? We look back and we see he's come to deal with the problem of sin and to offer the opportunity for rescue by dying on the cross to take the punishment for his enemies. And that's awesome and that's amazing. But that's not where this story ends because he's coming again to judge his enemies and to establish God's kingdom. And if you're not a Christian, you need to submit to him now. This is your opportunity. God's told you. where it's all going and if you are a christian hope in him i know life's difficult but you know why it's difficult it's because you know this is not how the world's designed to be every time you groan it's you saying genesis 1 and 2 is right this is not how the world's supposed to be and you know what You know why it's not the way it's supposed to be. It's because man didn't trust God way back at the beginning. So trust him now because he has a plan. He's going to defeat Satan. He's going to bring blessing into the world. And it's not going to be through your efforts. It's going to be through a great hero he sends, a descendant of David, who is going to take the punishment for your sin and will come again to fulfill absolutely every single one of God's promises. So don't give up. Whatever you do, don't give up. Hope in Jesus, the son of David. Let's pray. Lord, your word is awesome. Your plan is awesome. Not just because it all connects and there's all these interesting little things here and there, but because it's real. This is Your view of reality, this is your plan. We're getting all kinds of nonsense from the world all the time. This is how it is. This is how it is. No, this is how it is. And so, Lord, please, help those who aren't believers here. Would you open their eyes to the glory of Jesus? And, Lord, those of us who are believers, help us not to shut our eyes to the glory of Jesus. Amaze us once again this week. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.